You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part two in our series on the Burke and Wills Expedition. A couple of items before we start. First, in our last episode, I placed some information about this podcast in our show notes. This included names and brief descriptions of people and places important to the episode. Since the episode had a lot of information, I thought it might help that you could quickly reference the list if you got confused about something. The notes, to be honest, came out pretty nice, at least on some podcast apps. On my iPhone, the notes looked really good using Apple's podcast application, and it was really nice looking on my son's Google Podcast app he used on his phone. However, on my Spotify app, the nice list of names and places turned into one long, never-ending stream of information, as all the formatting was lost. So that experiment, I think, went okay. You will just have to look to see if the notes work, or not, in your podcast app, but I will continue to add them for future episodes. Second item, I had some very nice friends from Australia let me know about the proper pronunciation of some locations in our podcast. Did you know that Brisbane is Brisbane and Melbourne is Melbourne? Things like that. So who knows, maybe I'll tweak some pronunciations in today's episode, so long as it doesn't sound too dorky. Thank you so much to everyone who dropped me a line about this subject. I love to learn stuff like that. Final item, if you like this show and can spare a minute, I would love to get more online reviews and ratings for the podcast. It really does help improve the profile of the show, and that's something I'm working on. Also, it makes my day when people say nice things about the podcast. So, go to wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, wherever, and give the show a nice review. That would be awesome. Thank you in advance, and thanks to everyone who have already done so. I appreciate it. So with that, on with the show. Today we will pick up in the summer of 1860. The Exploration Committee of the Royal Society of Victoria had selected Robert Burke, the police superintendent in Castlemaine, to be the leader of the Victorian Exploring Expedition, the VEE. The goal was to be the first to cross the Australian continent. The plan was for the VEE to go to Cooper's Creek, about halfway across the continent, and then strike out from there into the unknown to the north coast. Burke's selection had been controversial, as he had no exploration experience, and he had not lived or worked in the Australian outback. Also, he lacked organizational skills and scientific credibility. The Exploration Committee was roasted by many of the newspapers, who recognized that Burke was a less-than-ideal candidate to lead the most expensive exploration expedition in Australian history. Now, all that said, let's remember, Burke had his positives, including charisma, energy, and passion. 
He was a brave and courageous man. He never expected others to lead the way. He would face the problems head-on, or help others, without regard to his own situation. That was admirable. But his weaknesses were many. In addition to being disorganized, he was quick to brush aside advice from others, did not trust many people, and often dismissed experience as unnecessary. However, the committee and Burke could have mitigated these weaknesses by hiring good people and planning the entire enterprise in a smart and efficient manner. As you will see, that's not really going to happen. So now that the VEE had its leader, it was time to sign on others to the endeavor and outfit the entire thing. The committee would be responsible for hiring the expedition's officers, while Burke would be given the authority to hire the rest of the men. More than 700 people would apply to be part of what many felt was a historic expedition, and there were some first-rate candidates among the applicants, including men who had been on Augustus Gregory's epic journey from Brisbane to Adelaide just two years earlier. These were men who had actually been to Cooper's Creek, which is where the expedition was going to make for. And there were plenty of tough, weathered men, called Bushies, who had lived and worked in the Australian outback, who were offering their services. And how many of these men would get hired? You guessed it, none. When the VEE departed in August, not a single person in the expedition would have any sort of exploration or bush experience. So, who did get the jobs? Well, let's find out. I'm going to go through a handful of the important people in the expedition, but know that we will add others as we go. For the second in command of the expedition, the committee and Burke both insisted on George Landells, the camel guy. Landells had traveled extensively and no doubt had a wide breadth of experience, but his primary qualifications for the job was the fact that he was the camel guy. He knew how to care for them and how to work with the Indian handlers, called sepoys. Because of this expertise, everyone considered Landells essential. However, Landells balked at the money offered by the committee and demanded £600 a year for his services. That was more than what Burke was getting. The committee wavered on this point, but they would eventually acquiesce to his demand. Of course, the committee couldn't have Burke making less money than Landell's, so they were forced to raise Burke's salary, so it was equal. Burke, however, would decline the raise. He was indifferent to the money unless he needed it. By the way, as part of taking the job, Landell's would insist that he had full authority over the camels. They were his babies. Landell's would never get this authority in writing, but it was made clear to everyone, including Burke, that Landell's had final say with regards to anything involving the camels. Landell's was, frankly, a bad choice. His leadership skills were limited, and he would prove to be stubborn and overly sensitive to criticism, not to mention hyper-protective of his camels. The next man in the hierarchy of the expedition was William John Wills, and next to Burke, he is the most important man in our story, as you probably guessed since the podcast bears his name. William Wills was born in 1834 in Devon, England, which would make him 26 when the expedition began. Wills was the son of a doctor, and even performed medical procedures as a teenager when his father was unavailable. He was a serious and gifted student and attracted to the sciences. He loved animals and plants, and more than anything, the stars. Wills's family would come to Australia in 1852 as part of the thousands testing their luck in the gold fields. Young Wills would ultimately become a skilled surveyor, and then, in 1858, move to Melbourne and become an assistant at an observatory, studying under the director, Georg von Neumeyer, who was a member of the Royal Society of Victoria and on the Exploration Committee. With Neumeyer's backing, Wills would get the job of third-in-command, under Burke and Landells, serving as the expedition's surveyor, astronomer, and meteorologist. Wills was, to be honest, a really, really good selection, despite his lack of field experience. Unlike most of the men in the VEE, he had essential skills that would be required to make things a success, 
such as actually being able to tell where he was in the middle of the outback, something Burke could not do. In many ways, Wills was the yin to Burke's yang. While Burke was athletic, extroverted, and impulsive, Wills was small in stature, quiet, and thoughtful. The two men would form an effective team. In addition to Burke, Landells, and Wills, the expedition had two other officers. The first was Ludwig Becker, a 52-year-old German geologist and naturalist. He was also a skilled artist, and many of the drawings he made have survived to this day. Becker was, frankly, too old and out of shape for the expedition. The second officer was another German, Hermann Beckler, a 32-year-old doctor and botanist. That is Beckler, by the way, with an L. Not to be confused with the geologist, Becker. Keep your ears open for that. Both men were supported by the German scientific community in Melbourne and had friends on the exploration committee. Burke did not like either of the Germans, as he felt that they were being forced on him. And more than that, he resented having to take along scientists. To Burke, the VEE was about glory. The last thing he wanted to worry about was taking care of some science nerds. It won't be long before Burke is trying to get rid of both of the men. Now, here are a few other men of note who started out with the expedition. First, there was John King, a 22-year-old Irishman and former soldier in the British Army. King had been brought from India by George Landells. He would work with the camels and help supervise the handlers, the sepoys. King will be in the background of our story to begin, but he will play a much larger role in the future. Next, there was 25-year-old William Bra, a German who was hired as a wagon driver. Bra's brother had a friend on the exploration committee. Like King, Bra will play a much bigger role later in our story. Next, we have Charles Ferguson, a 28-year-old American who signed on with the expedition as the foreman. He had worked extensively in the goldfields of Australia and was one of the few members of the expedition who boasted any sort of experience in the outback. Burke knew Ferguson and viewed him as sort of like a sergeant, the experienced man who would keep all the regular workers in line. Charles Gray is the next member of note in the expedition. He was a sailor from Scotland who had jumped ship to work in the Australian goldfields. He would get his job due to the recommendation of a colleague of Burke's. Gray is another man who will be much more important later in our story. Now, there were a bunch of other people on the expedition as well, and we'll talk about them as we go, but I don't want to throw out a million names at this point, so we'll just leave things there. In all, when the expedition departed in August of 1860, there would be 19 men, including six Irishmen, five Englishmen, three Germans, and one American, plus four sepoys to manage the camels, three of which were Afghans and one Indian. But I want to stress that this process of assembling the expedition had been sort of crazy. Most of the people who got jobs did so due to connections to Burke or members of the society. With the exception of Landells, Burke didn't have much input in the hiring of any of his officers. And amongst the rest of the men, there were those he had been pressured to hire. And because of this, we will discover a rather unattractive trait about Robert Burke. In simple terms, Burke did not trust people who might pose a threat to him or his ideas. This included those who questioned him or doubted him and it extended to those he did not personally know or who weren't recommended by someone that he trusted. Example, there were two men, both who had actual exploration experience, who had been hired by the exploration committee. Both of these men were dismissed the day before the expedition departed. The reason? Burke did not trust them because he had not hired them himself. Thus, he found a flimsy excuse to fire them on the eve of departing. This is a pattern we will see with Burke, and it is a dangerous pattern, he, whether realizing it or not, surrounded himself with yes-men, or men who didn't know any better. It allowed his exuberance and confidence, whether justified or not, to rule the day as there was no one who had the will or knowledge to challenge the guy. 
For Burke, loyalty was a premium quality. Like many of the men on the Exploration Committee, he eschewed experience and ability over someone who followed orders. So, with that said, here is a rundown of how the men of the VEE would get paid. Burke and Landells got £600. The other officers, Wills, Beckler, and Becker, got 300 Ferguson, the foreman, got £200. The rest of the men would get £120 each. So, we've got all these people, and camels, and now it's time to outfit the expedition. The outfitting process was haphazard. Remember, none of these people had ever managed anything like this. Thus, you will have individuals from the Exploration Committee ordering supplies, and then Burke ordering stuff, and then officers adding things. It was, as I said, haphazard. That said, I don't want to give the impression that people were just randomly buying things without any guidelines. Men like Burke and Wills and members of the committee did study previous expeditions and talk to people who did have experience and came away with a general understanding of what they needed. But the whole process was sort of like a bunch of people sitting around a table and throwing out every single item that could possibly be brought on a trip, and then buying it all, and then extras, just in case. In the end, there will be 20 tons of supplies purchased by the VEE. Here's a list of some of it. For food, there was 600 pounds of salt pork, 400 pounds of bacon, 2,500 pounds of rice, 7,000 pounds of flour, 200 pounds of biscuits, 3,000 pounds of sugar, 400 pounds of tea, 1,000 pounds of butter, and 320 pounds of pemmican, which is a mix of meat and fat. And with all that food, you need to cook it. That meant pots, camp ovens, frying pans, corkscrews, and utensils. And then we can't have our leader, Robert Burke, eating his meals like a common laborer. So there was a big oak table with matching stools brought along. Anything else? Ah, that is just the beginning. There was a pile of scientific gear, including a sextant, two prismatic compasses, two barometers, a telescope, scales, looking glasses, a pair of gold watches, and oodles of notebooks and sketchbooks. And let's not forget, we need to have a portable forge for the blacksmith. That meant an anvil, bellows, and tools. Oh, and we have to have weapons. This was a dangerous journey. The aborigines were unpredictable and had proven to be hostile at times. Plus, the men could go hunting. Thus, ten double-barrel shotguns were purchased, as well as six rifles and nineteen revolvers. And don't forget the ammo. Medical supplies were also critical to the party. Bandages and splints and medicine were just the start of things. There was 20 gallons of lime juice to stave off scurvy and four enema kits. And the list goes on and on. 150 pounds of candles, clothing, including uniforms for the men, tents and fishing supplies. There was even a Chinese gong, which would be used to signal everyone when meals were being served. Now, all of this stuff was for the men. But remember, we've got a bunch of horses and camels. We have to take care of them. That means 2,500 pounds of oats, 25,000 pounds of hay and straw, and we've got saddles and blankets and brushes. And then there's 60 gallons of rum. Rum? For horses and camels? That's correct. Well, just for the camels. George Landells insisted the camels needed it to revive them when they were tired. Yeah, if you think that sounds a bit sketchy, you're not the only one. But whatever. And finally, there would be a boat. Yes, a boat. If I read this correctly, the boat had wheels, making it like a wagon. You hooked it up to some horses, hauled it to wherever you wanted to go, and removed the wheels, and voila, you got a boat. Burke was flummoxed as to why the expedition needed a boat, but some on the committee insisted on its inclusion. It would be valuable crossing rivers, and what would happen if the expedition found the great inland sea that many people believed was somewhere in the Australian interior? A boat sure would come in handy if that happened. There is lots, lots more, but you get the idea. 
When all was said and done, the expedition had accumulated 20 tons of supplies. So all of this meant two things. First, it meant the expedition had used up most of their funds. Between buying camels, horses, wagons, provisions, and supplies, plus the salaries of the men in the expedition, there was not a lot of cash remaining. And second, with 20 tons of supplies, how do you get it all north? Well, at this point, there were a couple of interesting ideas. The first was a new proposal to take the entire expedition by ship to the north coast of Australia and deposit them at an inlet called Blunder Bay. The expedition would then march to Melbourne, a distance of at least 1,800 miles. Now, the idea, at least on paper, had some merit. Remember, the VEE, if it departed from Melbourne, would have to go across the country and back again. We're talking 3,000 miles, at minimum. However, a huge issue with the idea was that the expedition would basically be dropped in the middle of nowhere, with no way to communicate with the outside world, and no way to retreat to a place of safety if necessary. Also, there were concerns that the expedition would be arriving on the North Shore right as the monsoon season was kicking in. But the biggest reason this idea was shut down was public opinion. The newspapers torched the committee for considering the idea. The Victorian expedition beginning at Blunder Bay? Outrageous. It was a matter of pride that the expedition would leave from Victoria and return there. In the end, the committee, after initially embracing the idea, rejected it. This meant that the committee and Burke returned to the original plan, which was the same one suggested by explorer Augustus Gregory two years earlier, which was to go northwest to Cooper's Creek and set up a depot there, and then strike out into the unknown from a position of safety. From Melbourne to Cooper's Creek, the distance was, in a direct line, about 750 miles, and then the trek to the north coast was at least another 700 miles. But again, those distances are as the crow flies, and will be quite a bit longer for our explorers. By the way, the proposed route from Melbourne to the Gulf of Carpentaria is comparable to going from New Orleans to Canada and then back again, and that's on foot and through the desert. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. The second idea was presented by Captain Francis Cadell, who was on the Exploration Committee. Cadell was a steamship owner and offered to take the bulk of the supplies from Melbourne to Adelaide in South Australia. From there, a steamship would go up the Murray River, which connected to the Darling River, which went all the way to Menendee, which was a frontier settlement about halfway between Melbourne and Cooper's Creek. Now, the ship was not guaranteed to reach Menendee, as the waters could get shallow in the summer months, but with luck, it would get to the small outpost and save the VEE the task of transporting overland 20 tons of supplies more than 400 miles. So, that sounded like a great idea, right? Well, no. The reason was that Burke did not trust Cadell, as the captain had opposed Burke's nomination to lead the expedition. Burke believed that Cadell would sabotage things by somehow delaying or stopping the supplies from reaching Menendee. But the committee thought it was a grand idea and agreed to it. However, Burke was not done. Two days before departing, he would refuse to allow any of the supplies and stores to be sent to the docks to be loaded on the ship. People tried to convince Burke to relent, 
but he would have none of it. In the end, Burke felt that transporting the supplies overland was the best option. This meant that he was forced to hire two additional wagons to manage the supplies, all at the cost of a sky-high rate of 200 pounds per wagon. Frankly, this was a really, really bad decision. The march to Menendi, we will see, was not simple. Getting the bulk of the supplies to the Alpos would have helped the expedition in so many ways. And to make this happen just two days before the departure of the expedition, well, that was just kind of crazy. And it was all due to Burke's pride and paranoia. So that gets us to the eve of launching the Victorian Exploring Expedition in August of 1860. In the end, there would be 23 horses, 6 wagons, 26 camels, and 20 tons of supplies, along with 19 men. By the way, the expedition had purchased some extra camels that had been brought to Australia previously, which is why they had more than the 25 recently transported from India. So it is almost time to get going. The plan was as follows. Lead the expedition to Menendee, then to Cooper's Creek. From there, Burke would strike out to the north. As noted, Menendee is about 400 miles northwest of Melbourne, if you look at a map, but it was 460 miles following the established road. Menendee was the final settlement the expedition would reach on their journey north. From Menendee, Cooper's Creek was then another 350 miles, if you are a crow. The exact distance and route were only vaguely known, but Burke and the expedition probably knew that they had a good 400 miles or so to cover to reach it. From Cooper's Creek, the Gulf of Carpentaria was the shortest distance to the north coast, about 700 miles in a straight line. But the area between Cooper's Creek and the north coast was barely explored, so no one knew exactly how far the journey would be. Burke's orders were vague as well, giving him a lot of leeway, and while there were nods to the scientific part of the expedition, Burke's goals were clearly aligned with those of the business interests within the society. In the end, Burke was basically told, get the expedition to Cooper's Creek, do what you need after that and there was little doubt that Burke would head north, for the coast, in a bid for glory. And for Burke, this was a big deal. He was determined to succeed. He would tell a friend, quote, I will cross Australia or perish in the attempt, end quote. Now, in addition to his pride, Burke had a couple of very personal reasons for wanting this journey to be successful. One was love, and the other was money. Love and money? What does that have to do with an expedition to cross Australia? Well, the answer is that Burke was heavily in debt owing nearly 500 pounds to various people throughout the area. These were, primarily, gambling debts. As we said earlier, Burke was the kind of person who didn't really care that much about money, but when he lacked it and it caused problems, well, he took note. The salary he would earn would, therefore, be a boon to him. He would come back to Melbourne, pay off all of his creditors, and be set for life as the continent's most famous explorer. And that leads to Burke's second reason, love. Or maybe obsession is a better term. Whatever, it is a weird story, but I thought it was worth sharing. You see, Burke had fallen madly in love with a popular 18-year-old actress and singer named Julia Matthews. Burke would go to her performances whenever possible. Frankly, nowadays, we would call him a creepy stalker. Anyhow, he would propose to the young lady, but Matthews' mother put a kibosh on any sort of relationship. Her daughter was a cash cow to the family, making as much as 60 pounds a week. The last thing she wanted was her daughter running off to be the wife of a country policeman. However, Burke felt that his position as Victoria's leading explorer would change that. Before departing, he would visit her, giving her a locket with his picture in it. She would accept the token, which gave him hope for the future. He would get a lock of her hair to carry with him. He would, once he returned, no longer be a simple police officer. He would be famous, and that meant money. That just might make Julia Matthews reconsider his offer of marriage. One of the last things Burke did before departing was to write out a will leaving everything he had to Julia Matthews, 
a shocking and scandalous thing to do for a man in his position. So the expedition was ready. Everything, well, not everything, was loaded onto the wagons and horses and camels and set to march out of Melbourne on August 20th, 1860. The plan was to go overland to Menendee and then the Cooper's Creek. There they would set up a supply depot. Burke would then be able to scout out the landscape and determine the next steps in the attempt to cross the continent. And let's not forget, he would have to return home. Now, a few comments before the VEE departs. The first comment is about the makeup of the expedition. I mentioned earlier that Burke could have saved himself a lot of pain if he and the committee had hired quality people. And while there were a lot of good and decent men brought on board, they sorely lacked experience, both with regard to exploration and leadership. Outside of Burke, none of the officers had any real experience leading men. And at the same time, there was a lack of critical skill sets amongst the men. Only a couple of the company, including William Wills, could calculate latitude and longitude, and none of the men understood or spoke the languages of any of the aboriginal peoples who lived in the areas to the north. The makeup of the expedition makes me appreciate what Lewis and Clark had done more than 50 years earlier. They had selected only the best of the best for their expedition. The captains had hired men who could hunt and track, as well as communicate with the natives. And then the men had spent an entire winter training together before actually departing. This weeded out malcontents and problematic recruits and allowed the men to gel as a unit. The second thing was the outfitting of the expedition. There were just too many hands involved, and hands that did not fully understand the nature of what the expedition was about to undertake. This meant that they had way too much stuff. The third thing is related to the timing of the expedition. As a reminder, Burke was hired for the job in June of 1860, and in just two months he's going to march out of Melbourne. That's a crazy short time to put together such an enterprise. It again just demonstrates the erratic approach the Exploration Committee had taken with the entire thing, especially waiting so long to hire Burke. And even more than that, the expedition was starting late. Let us remember, this is Australia. If you're going to head into the arid regions, the best time of year to do it is April through September. South Australia's explorer, John McDougall Stewart, had left in March with this exact thing in mind. But the VEE was departing in August, essentially late winter or spring. Part of the reason for this was the committee took such a long time to hire Burke. But the other major reason was that the camels had arrived months later than anticipated. In retrospect, waiting until the fall, which would have meant March or April of 1861, would have been the best thing for everyone. But haste was in order. The Victoria expedition needed to get going in order to beat John McDougall Stewart to the north coast. And speaking of McDougall Stewart, no one knew this, but the Scotsman was, in June, forced to turn around in his attempt to cross the unknown outback. McDougall Stewart had reached the center of the continent, no simple feat, but hostile aborigines had forced his small party to turn around. Burke and the VEE didn't know it, but they did have the jump on their rivals from South Australia. Now, I do want to make a final comment about the expedition and its makeup and so forth. And that is, the VEE had a lot of good things going for it. They were not undersupplied, and the first stage of the affair was pretty clear. Get to Menendee, then to Cooper's Creek, and set up a supply depot. That is not too confusing. So, in the weeks leading up to the departure of the VEE, Burke and his men would be feted by the people of Melbourne. Burke would go to dinners and events, giving speeches and thanking the people of Victoria for their support. He was, frankly, really good at this part of his job, and he loved every minute of it. A few days before departing, all of the men of the VEE gathered for a big ceremony where each man signed a memorandum of agreement, essentially saying that they would follow Burke's orders. And then, finally, it was time to depart. The day was August 20th, 1860. The Victorian Exploring Expedition gathered at Melbourne's Royal Park. 
But this would not be a simple wave goodbye and head out of town type of departure. This was a circus. 15,000 men, women, and children would come from all over the area to see off their heroes. It was like a grand parade. Makeshift food and beer stands sprung up. There would be music and speeches and cheers. It was unlike anything ever seen in Melbourne. And it was a big deal for the city and for the colony of Victoria. They were coming into their own as a people, and completing the first transcontinental crossing would be something that they could hang their hats on. So, while the populace was thrilled by their hometown heroes, things were not going particularly well for Burke and his men. The scene was chaos. Landells was unhappy about the extra load his camels were now asked to carry, more than 300 pounds instead of 100. He insisted they needed to stay fresh, and their loads kept to a minimum this early in the trek. He would argue with Burke, who would eventually hire yet another wagon, at a sky-high rate, to carry the excess supplies. Also, regarding the camels, the men were having issues with them. The first problem was simply understanding how to load them properly. They had never really done this. You had to be very specific and make sure that the weight on both sides of the camel was equal. The second issue was the smell of the camels would drive the horses crazy, which in turn would make the camels skittish. More than once, one of the animals would bolt and run wild amongst the throng of people. The expedition would finally get going in the afternoon and stagger their departure out of Melbourne, all to the cheers of the crowd. But even now, problems arose. One wagon got stuck in the mud, and then one would break down, and then another. It was the greatest expedition in Australian history, not even making it out of the city. The VEE would stagger their way north to the town of Essendon, where they would set up camp for the night. They had traveled just four miles on their first day. The men of the expedition would quickly find that unloading and setting up camp was a longer and more difficult job than anticipated. This would make an already tired group of men even more exhausted. So, as the expedition set up camp on that first night, Robert Burke urgently raced back to Melbourne on horseback. The reason? To see actress Julia Matthews in a play one last time before departing into the outback. The next morning, the VEE would get a late start, again, not departing until mid-afternoon. Horses and camels would wander in the night and have to be tracked down, and reloading everything was proving to be as convoluted as unloading. Here, William Wills, the expedition's third-in-command, would say farewell to his father. Wills would also write a letter to a friend and say that the expedition had had a, quote, miserable start, end quote. And so the Victorian exploring expedition plotted forward, an inauspicious beginning to what they hoped would be a historic and epic crossing of Australia. With the VEE underway, we will leave things there for today. Next time, we will continue our trek to Menendee and on to Cooper's Creek. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. I want to thank everyone for listening, as well as your support. I wish good health to you and your loved ones. Take care. I will see you next time. Hello. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.